You're listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the Executive Vice President and GM of Wiley University Services and Talent Development, Todd Zipper. Hello, I'm Todd Zipper, host of An Educated Guest. On today's show, I speak with Sean Gallagher, founder and executive director of Northeastern University's Center for the Future of Higher Education and Talent Strategy. Sean is a nationally recognized expert with nearly 20 years of experience in higher education. At Northeastern, Sean works with colleges to launch growth initiatives, including the development of new campuses and degree programs. The key takeaways from today. First, why education is in a transition period and how innovations help to evolve the model. Second, the value chain of higher education and how it has gone from vertically integrated to a horizontal model where learners can access content from many different providers. Third, the goals of employers who are creating their own credentials and training programs and how they could work with universities in the future. And lastly, how the shift in employers' requirements for applicants can cause universities to evolve and change their content. Hello, Sean, and thank you for being here today on An Educated Guest. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start by having you tell us about both Northeastern University and the Center for the Future of Higher Education and Talent Strategy, which you currently run. I've always been so impressed with Northeastern and its unique co-op program, which combines learning and earning or full-time work in one continuous way. Perhaps start with Northeastern and then go into what the center does and how it fulfills the university's mission. Sure. So Northeastern is a private research university. It's about 125 years old. It's headquartered, I guess you could say, in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, in terms of its history. But over the last decade or so, we've really branched out and established more of a global network with a series of campuses in spots around the world that are all integrated and basically are all in service of this vision of global experiential learning. That's really one of the core parts of Northeastern that's unique uh, in its place in the higher education community is the focus on experiential learning. Can you say a couple more things about experiential learning? I don't want to assume anything. Experiential learning can be thought of as a real continuum when we think about classroom-based learning and also experiences in the world. So it could include study abroad, various work experiences, cooperative education has been the historical anchor at Northeastern, internships, capstones, online projects, and in some cases, apprenticeships around the world that's sometimes referred to as work-integrated learning. So there's many different terms, but it's a way of blending uh, practice and application and feedback embedded in the real world of work while also having a traditional educational model. And I know that's a good segue with what you're doing at the at the Center for the Future of Higher Education and Talent Strategy, because you're bringing the voice of the employer to bear. So can you tell us about the research that your organization does and the core themes that you wrap it in? Yeah, the Center's work really extends from Northeastern's heritage and market position. So we focus on studying the intersection of the world of work and post-secondary learning. And the goal is really to impact the marketplace by enabling the development of new models that integrate and eliminate the gap between work and learning. So everything that happens at that intersection, and I'd point out not just this idea of college students going off into the world of work as graduates at the end of a pipeline, but also the learning that's happening in the workplace, what's happening with experienced talent and the hiring process and adult learners and how online credentials are viewed. All those sorts of themes and topics or issues that sit at that intersection where we're really trying to help stakeholders in the post-secondary education ecosystem understand what's happening in the world of employment, especially as it concerns employers' behaviors, their attitudes, their strategies, and their business models. So it's not just looking at labor market data or thinking about innovative program approaches, uh, but rather studying and digging in deep on what it is employers are doing and what that means in terms of how the system has to adapt and how we can grow uh, the market. Excellent. I read a great quote from you recently that said, this is education's Netflix moment. I think you're referring to some of the decrease in on-campus enrollments that we're experiencing, not only due to COVID, but also due to the birth declines. 
How can higher ed adapt and perhaps accept the fact that the traditional on-campus enrollments are changing and that there's kind of a new world we're all experiencing today? Yeah, we're in this world of platforms and of digitization, and it's still very early. But I think what's changed is that there are some new distribution channels. I think about what happened in the world of recorded music, or as you refer to with Netflix, various types of media and, and movies and shows. And it's remarkable if you look back at the last 20 or 30 years and what we had with everything from America Online and CompuServe to the rise of Google and now these different platforms that exist. And so education, higher education is in the middle of one of those transitions where it's being distributed in new ways. Online learning or rather uh, online degrees have been around for about 25 years, but it's still a market that's growing at a high rate, and it's still something that most people haven't necessarily experienced, but it's becoming much, much more common. And so with a lot of these innovations and new models, it's a multi-decade cycle of adoption. Some of that is certainly speeding up due to the pandemic, but much of it is slow and steady change. We throw around a name like Netflix or some of the other leading technology platforms that have disrupted other industries. Google, which has, I think, 90% market share. Facebook and its meta name has probably a similar market share. We've got Microsoft. We've got Apple. These are trillion dollar, trillions of dollar company. These are industries that they're disrupting. Is it possible? And and this was a good question I was going to ask you a little bit later. I'm going to jump right in. Education or higher education has its own emerging direct-to-learner platforms that have gotten a lot of attention in the media. Many of them have gone public now. We're talking about Udemy. We're talking about Coursera. We're talking about edX, which was recently acquired by TU. There's also LinkedIn Learning, which is a huge platform uh, acquired many years ago by LinkedIn, which of course is now owned by Microsoft. Is it possible, how are you thinking about those platforms and potentially being part of this higher education ecosystem? In professional learning and direct-to-consumer education, I think these various companies and platforms are definitely gaining market share, and they are disintermediating universities and colleges uh, in certain cases. Um, I'm not sure that's happening overall in terms of the, the different jobs that a college degree uh, does or the value proposition that it has, the role it has in society and uh, an employer's hiring process and and all of that. Um, But when you think about professional learning and lifelong learning and the fact that that is something that people either want to engage in or it's simply required to get ahead or or stay ahead in the job market, uh, that is a space where either universities will be providing more content or we're going to see these third parties, if you will, for-profit companies in some cases, become the content providers. And one way to think about this, which I got many years ago from our president, Joseph Ayun, is the value chain of higher education and the idea that historically it's been vertically integrated, right? So the universities and the professors are designing the content and they're writing the textbooks and they're delivering it and they handle all the pieces, much like automobile companies years and years ago, owned the whole supply chain. They built the chassis and the engine and the electronics and so on. And instead, it's more of a a best of breed model where it's more horizontal. And now you have the beginnings of you can learn and access content, excellent world-class content from many different providers. It doesn't necessarily have to come from a university or a professor. And then you can get that assessed somewhere else. You can get the competencies that you've gained evaluated. Maybe there's another party that will award the credential in this whole value chain. So there's this early beginnings of a disconnect between the content and the instruction and the assessment and the awarding of the credential. And there are some examples like that today where you can get an industry certification from a third party of some sort that's not an accredited institution And then maybe a college will assess that knowledge, and then maybe you still get a degree or a certificate from some other institution entirely, or you transfer the credits. Education doesn't work that way in the United States in terms of having a really fluid, open marketplace. But as more of this goes online and goes digital, and we start to have some standards where you can exchange data and information and whoever's evaluating it can dig in, I think we'll see see more of that happen in the future. 
I want to jump into employers' role, which I know you study a lot in the higher ed ecosystem. So we know more and more employers are doing their own training programs and awarding credentials that way. Uh, we've seen it with Google, um, Salesforce is out there. I know we've got Amazon, Microsoft, IBM. Can you tell us a little bit about what these programs are? Why have these big companies come out there and design these programs essentially for free, is my understanding, to give this content and this training away for free to what seems like opening up access, closing the skill gap? What are they hoping to attain? Where do you see this trend right now? It seems like it's very early and the impact that it's making on society. It is a major and important trend, and it's been around for a while if you think about the IT certifications that appeared in the late 1990s and the 2000s with the dot-com boom, Microsoft and Cisco and Novell. Many of them still have major businesses as education providers, so it's actually part of their business where they advance their ecosystem or they build their brand. Uh, and I think there are similar motivations here with some of the new providers, newer entrants like Google and IBM, Salesforce, HubSpot, and, and countless others. Uh, and it certainly is, as those examples speak to, more in the tech field or in the tech industry, which is both very competency-driven in terms of how they hire, but also has just a massive skill shortage, which is the other thing. And so that's where so many of the jobs are and where people need to be upskilled and where there isn't enough talent. So it's part of this push to develop new pipelines beyond colleges and universities or beyond professional associations and other ways that people can get these skills. And I think some of these firms, they maybe don't always want to be in the education business, but they want to contribute. It helps their brand. It helps grow their industry. And they hire many of the graduates of these certificate and certification programs and other types of credentialing programs. I'd point out there's a lot of confusion about what's a certification. There's a hundred different types of certificate you could get. Are they evaluated for academic credit? It really depends on what you're looking at. And I think the consumer needs to be very careful. But at the same time, there's a lot of value and a lot of employers have committed to hiring graduates of these new programs. And something we're really actively studying. We have some working groups with some of those employers and we're trying to um, dig in and better understand employers' receptivity to hiring people that have credentials from maybe their competitor or especially colleges' ability to, as we've done at Northeastern in some cases with IBM and Google, recognize these certificates and programs for academic credit as a pathway into a degree program. And I think that's happening most at community colleges. We actually did a journal volume published about a year ago in a Wiley publication where we were looking at community colleges starting to weave various certifications and tech vendor offerings into their curriculum. And it's back to that same idea we just talked about where the university or the professor doesn't always need to be the developer of some of this content or curriculum, but they can leverage it and they can weave it into and, and add value to what it is that they're delivering. And I do think that's something we'll see more of, but there's also uh, a bit of pushback potentially from some circles where they see it as this kind of corporate encroachment into the world of education. Yeah, I'm trying to make sense of how much of this is competition or supplement. Don't go down the traditional degree path. You can come here for this specific type of job-ready training, and then you can get your job versus something that is part of the university experience. Like you mentioned, what is often called stackable credentials or certificates where you can bring certain things together, whether they're inside of a university or outside, but the university can help sort of stack it into a curated form. So can you talk a little bit more about the university's role in all of this going forward with the Googles of the world producing this free content around really important training? Most of the activity, I'd argue, is very supplemental. It's not supplanting education providers. And a lot of these major tech firms and others, I would note there are financial companies, retailers, manufacturers that we've uh, talked and worked with who are looking to issue their own credentials. And so it will go beyond technology occupations. But I don't think they want to disrupt colleges and universities in the way that we hear that narrative. Now, sure, that's happening at the margin in some cases, but I don't think it's the goal of these entities to stamp out colleges. They're actually much more focused on partnering with them and working with them 
again, to build out the talent base in these fields that really need it, right? So as we record this podcast, there's this record level of job openings or major supply chain challenges, and we're just living in a very complicated world. And we need new solutions and we need more providers and more creative types of partnerships to solve some of these challenges rather than just assume people are going to be able to stop out of their working life or take out a loan and pursue a college degree or even a coding boot camp or something else. All that will, of course, still happen in very large numbers, but it's about the development of some new and some interesting options. So it still seems like the university degree remains a priority when hiring talent for employers. However, many of these companies are not now requiring a degree for certain open positions. These are getting headline attention. Do you have a sense of of how big this market is? I know, and I'll just quote one of the stats from one of your recent surveys that really popped out that it said 34% of HR leaders indicated their organization uses hiring strategies with a lens on competencies over college degrees. That was pretty powerful, right? That's a shift. It's not at 74%, but it's 34%. Can you just talk a little bit about where you see this ecosystem going between degrees and this other (laughs) non-degree category? Yeah, so we're at least five years into this trend toward uh, skills-based or competency-based hiring, which doesn't necessarily mean that employers are throwing out degrees, but that they're being more intentional about how they develop job descriptions and how they set their preferences and requirements for talent. That's actually the focus of my dissertation and part of what got the center launched ultimately was some work in this area. And I think we often assume in the education world that these major employers have this down to a science and they're using a lot of data and that there's a lot of rigor in how they think about requiring, let's say, a master's degree or an MBA for a certain role or preferring someone from a certain type of college with a certain level of selectivity. But in fact, when you look at it, the HR function and employers and just how they approach this and how complicated it can often be have really been behind in applying data to the process and being able to justify and measure different things related to skills and competencies. And so as technology marches along and gets applied to the HR and the talent function in the same way that we've seen it in marketing and finance and other areas of business, it's now beginning to refine that process. Now, the other thing that's happened, in addition to just kind of optimizing how that works within companies is a couple things. There's the skills uh, and and talent shortage that's been going on. And so when you can't find enough college graduates, if that's historically been what you've looked for, you need to begin to expand your pool and start thinking about, do we really need a college degree associated with this role or can we look elsewhere? And if we're not going to rely on a college degree as maybe a signal of someone's ability to learn or skills that they might have, what are the other ways that we could do it. We could do a pre-hire assessment, and increasingly you can do that online. Uh, You can take new approaches to interviewing and so on. And then the additional angle, which got particularly amplified in 2020, is the, the equity dynamic and just the fact that many companies are looking to diversify their talent base and they're looking to tap into new pools of talent and maybe people who have been excluded or have not had as much access to college education. Those things have kind of come together to create this real trend where there's this momentum and, in fact, very significant statements from many CEOs and so on where they're moving towards skills-based hiring. So to come around full circle, we got some of the first data trying to understand what was the prevalence of that back in 2018, and it was about a quarter of employers who said that they were either doing that already or moving in that direction. And in this most recent survey, it was up to, I think, close to 35%. It's very significant growth, but of course, I tend to point out that it doesn't mean that these employers are throwing out degrees, but it's that they're getting more rigorous and more open in terms of how they think about what a college degree means when they hire. Yeah. Sean, do you think this has many market forces, potentially a correcting mechanism around the cost, right? So as the employers continue to go more towards this skill-based competency, and they're willing to look at things other than a college degree, will that put pressure on the college degree to evolve, to maybe get 
shorter, right? That's a thing that people are looking for, more affordable and more practical. I mean, do you see that happening or do you see it generally still looking like it does today? I'm glad you asked that. I, I think that will happen and it is slowly happening. In the world of higher ed right now and educational innovation, if you will, a lot of the attention has been on these these new shiny objects, some of which are important and promising and great, whether it's digital badges or competency-based education, online degrees, all these things that have come along that represent an evolution or something new that could maybe deliver more value. The degrees and the products that we have, where you have tens, hundreds of billions of dollars in spending around, uh, tens of millions of enrollments, and that's not even beginning to count the online and casual learners and professional learners that aren't captured in some of those official statistics. There's a massive market still, even though it's declined a bit, a massive market for what we might call traditional college and university education, both in the U.S. and also around the world. But there's an opportunity to deliver greater value, to have higher ROI, lower costs, more ideal outcomes, greater employability, all those things as it relates to the degrees that we that we do have. And maybe the pandemic in the way that it's reset a lot of what's happening in the higher ed market is this opportunity to get there. So I know one of the great things about our system, for better or for worse, is the signaling that if you get a degree from an accredited institution, a bachelor's, a master's, especially if you know the name of the institution, it signals something to the employer market. But as you mentioned, that's that's changing. And now we have a lot of innovation happening in this credentialing market, but it still feels a bit like the Wild West, right? In terms of what are the standards, what are the policy around this? Can you get federal funding to fund your program? I recently saw that UNESCO has convened an effort to move toward a common language around these micro-credentials. Can you talk a little bit about more about this, of how you see this evolving, the standardization of credentials beyond the degree? Yes. Yeah, so with the history of degrees, when you look back, this is how we got accreditation in the United States, which is largely a U.S.-based kind of approach. You know, we have a lot more private institutions and more institutions in many other countries where they tend to have publicly funded and, and publicly based systems. But in any event, about 100 years ago, these groups of institutions came together and they said, you know what, our degrees are all a little bit different, or we're going to have graduate degrees coming in like the European model into the United States. And we're going to do that now. And so we need to standardize and make sure that we can all have these things mean the same thing out in the marketplace. And that's how regional accreditation arose in part. But with new types of credentials, and I'd underscore that most colleges and universities have, have long offered certificates for decades upon decades, and you can get certificates and other sorts of credentials online, in person, through executive education, part-time, full-time, all kinds of different forms. But then these, these new constructs came along, and some colleges and universities, I, I think it's slowed down a little bit, and certainly some of the third-party providers, and these are trademark terms, nano-degree, micro-masters, and, and so on, micro-degree. There's all these new types of credentials that are basically being marketed, but there is no standardized approach, really, in terms of what some of these mean or what they include, at least when you think about it from almost like a regulatory perspective. Whether that's voluntary or whether that's government mandated, it's really a bunch of colleges and other providers sort of doing what they'd like, and in some cases, harmonizing that with academic credit hours. And so to your point, there's a bit of a Wild West going on. Now, other countries are taking a slightly different approach, but around the world, this is all still very early. So different provinces in Canada or Australia or the EU or UNESCO, they're trying to bring together various institutions and stakeholders and say, okay, here's what a micro-credential is. And that's really the basket, the catch-all category for a lot of these new types of credentials and certificates and badges and so on is micro-credentials. And so they're trying to define what is a micro-credential, what's an entail, how long is it to try to get more momentum for a standardized way of approaching it, rather than basically not being able to compare apples to apples so that you have more transferability and so employers know what it means and so that the consumer can understand what, what will this thing do for me, right? I'd like a job or I want to master a certain skill or 
disciplinary domain do I do the degree? Do I do a certificate? Should I get some sort of micro-credential? Should I just take a course? Does it not matter? Does it matter if it's accredited or not? There are all these questions. What's good is that people have, for the most part, been able to sort this out as these new offerings have appeared, but there's a long way to go in terms of potential standardization. So you mentioned Europe, and it sort of ignited a thought for me around not an innovation per se, something that's been around for centuries, is the apprenticeship, right? You even talked briefly about this with Northeastern. This is something that appears to be very underutilized in this country, but it connects you know, learning and earning. Do you have any thoughts around that on why there's a lot of support for it, I think, across the board, but doesn't seem to have momentum? Yeah, apprenticeships are tricky and fascinating. And I'm not an apprenticeship expert in the way that many people have focused their career on studying or building apprenticeships, but it is in that continuum of experiential learning that I talked about, and certainly a, a category of interest in the educational policy world that I study. And my sense is the the energy for apprenticeships, especially the last six or seven years, arose out of this desire for alternatives to college degrees, which included micro-credentials, badges, coding boot camps. And interestingly, when you look back, as very opposite as the policies of these administrations were, the Obama administration and the Trump administration were arguably both aligned on trying to create more alternatives beyond the college degree and to try to encourage innovation. Over the course of the last 10 years, regardless of who was president or what the policies were, you saw the business community, various state governors, uh, the federal government, educators in some sense, a lot of groups coming together and saying, look, we need more practical alternatives for skilled labor and for talent in certain areas. And let's look at these other models to do it uh, rather than just community colleges or just on the job training and that sort of thing. And my impression is when you look at the German and Austrian system as really tends to be held up as the the gold standard in terms of they've made apprenticeships work. It's interwoven into their entire educational and economic and societal system. And at a scale too, that's very different from the US. When we've taken looks at various apprenticeship programs, it's very hard to find any that have more than let's say a hundred or a few hundred apprentices in them. And if you think about that scaling up and then also consider What does it take for an employer to run an apprenticeship program or to be engaged in it? We've done some studies that are more focused on internships and those sorts of experiences. As anyone, probably most of the listeners have been in this position, you've had an intern, you've hired an intern, maybe you've been engaged in an internship program at your company. And if you do it well and you do it right, it can be a lot of work and it can have an incredible return. And many companies will tell you and they can measure that they get their best talent from the internship pipeline, but it takes work on the employer side. So it's not like we can wave a magic wand and say, we're going to have more apprentices. We really need to build the infrastructure for that and the policies around it. And I suppose also the incentives for it. That's one of the things we see with experiential learning generally is, again, if we go beyond the U.S. and you look to Canada and some other places, there's incentives for employers to hire interns or co-op students or apprentices that we might not have in, in certain cases in the US. So you start to get into all the financing mechanisms and a whole bunch of layers, but it is an exciting area. I'd be curious to see how much the momentum continues through this changing job market. And also, frankly, with all of this, the fact that as we record this, the last two years, we haven't spent as much time in offices, right? Or on the manufacturing shop floor or wherever else that that people work. And that's made it much more challenging to have the kinds of experiences, the hands-on experiences that apprenticeships and internships and mentoring are all built around. You mentioned how the, the two last administrations have been very supportive of these alternative credentials. About a decade or so ago, the coding bootcamp market sort of emerged, and oftentimes it's called a bootcamp market. It's really focused around developing, you know, software engineers or, or programmers. Do you have a sense of kind of where we are with that? It seems like it's a decent size industry, good outcomes, getting people placed in good jobs. But is it at a scale yet that's really helping to close any of the skills gap? What, what is your thoughts around that model for one? It's a great model. It looks like it's continued to grow from the sources that I've looked at. 
I would place it on that spectrum of it's something that universities and other providers have long done, even if they're not accredited institutions. And so due to the skill shortage in coding and analytics and other areas, you had this moment and you had the venture capital in some cases that fueled it as well, where all these providers sprung up to focus on that challenge. And the thing that I've found most fascinating, and I actually talked about this in my book five years ago, is universities partnering with bootcamp firms and adopting that type of approach themselves. And so now it's a both and that you have these independent coding schools and other entities, and you have some of the most selective and prestigious and also well-known and largest public colleges and universities that are offering their own boot camps, often in partnership with a third-party provider, whether it's a tech company, a publisher, those that are in this business. And so the fact that it's just, it can be a different educational delivery format is I think what stands out. And what I continue to be intrigued by is how universities and faculty think through, as we talked about with credentials, what are the pieces where they're going to focus on it being their core competency versus it being a piece that they can outsource? So universities, what are they really in the business in, in terms of the teaching mission? They design curriculum, they have classroom space, maybe they have online learning tools, they have the faculty who they hire, they they do the assessment, right? That's their business. And that's also the same pieces you would need. They also have brands too, by the way. If you were to start a coding school or some type of boot camp, you would need to bring together all those elements and all those core competencies. But for right now, the momentum really seems to be with a lot of these partnerships and with universities thinking about that as an extension of their market. So let's talk quickly about COVID in that it's a topic I actually haven't paid a lot of attention to from a higher ed perspective because things have been back to normal now for at least six months or so. And universities really have done a spectacular job of keeping their institutions open, kids safe, and, and obviously utilizing online and accelerating what they were already doing online, but even more. We're almost two years into this. We're now have certain college campuses are are going remote, which they know how to do for January because we've got this new variant raging. Do you have any reflections just kind of two years in? Where are we? What has this done for good and bad around the higher ed system? I think the world is going to look forever different in higher education and probably other areas of life too, of course, now that we've been through this transition. The pandemic has exposed a lot of players in higher ed, whether it's faculty, senior administrators, traditional age students, to some of the benefits of online learning, uh, also some of the downsides or challenges when it's not done right. I think we're just in the very early innings of that now being woven into really how education is going to be delivered as a majority moving forward. Intentionality is really important and sound design. So what's very tricky is thinking about or attempting to study or just extrapolating from, and I see this in the media and with a lot of different college leadership and policy leaders and so on, extrapolating that emergency experience of hastily designed online learning or remote learning as a stopgap that happened in the pandemic versus when you have really strong instructional design and online learning with the right tools and with the right support and with faculty who are trained to do it well. In fact, an interesting personal experience I had as someone who, as I think about it at this point, I've taught online, I've earned a degree online, I've studied online myself. My two sons went through 100% online virtual school. We decided, although they were an excellent public school system, that once we were entering that real full year of the pandemic, that they might get a better experience at an institution that had something built in a fully online way and had the teachers and the technology to really do that versus how they were trying to cobble it together in the school where they were. Now, I'm delighted that they've gone back into a regular classroom environment, which you need and want for that social development and the traditional experience and everything else. But when you do the online right, you can have some quality outcomes. So I want to go back to what you talked about with competency-based education, one of the areas that you studied. I recently read an article about Western Governors University. So, so many universities are struggling right now. It's kind of the tale of two cities. Alternative credentials, digital offerings are doing great. 
some of the traditional schools and enrollments are not doing so great. And yet a school like WGU, which is really prides itself and is the poster child for competency-based education, seems to be doing incredibly well. And they talked about how they've built in industry certifications in technology into their bachelor's of technology degrees. Do you have any reflections there on schools that have kind of leaned into a fully CBE type of model? Because it seems like they're quite unique out there as like a unicorn just pursuing this one strategy. Yeah, in the grand scheme of American higher ed, I'd say competency-based education seems to fit best in the adult learning world, continuing education, lifelong learning, people completing degrees, earning degrees part-time, which is a very significant market and a place where I've focused a lot. If you want to gain credit or make progress for what you already know, or you're doing it as a working adult learner, that can be a very effective model. But if you're 18 or 19 years old, or you're someone who's doing a career transition and you know nothing about nursing or health informatics, but that's what you want to go into and you've been working in manufacturing, I'm not sure that competency-based education is always going to get you there or be able to get you there in terms of what that model does. I think it's fantastic and that the world of higher ed overall, as it focuses often on being more practical and having stronger job market outcomes, is becoming and will become more competency-oriented, but that fully competency-based education program or institution is probably likely to be relatively rare. And so WGU has done a great job at, at capturing a large share of that market and growing you know, at a very significant rate. And I think we'll see that creep into more and more programs, whether it's master's degrees, bachelor's degree completion, certain types of certificate offerings, and I know there's there's various networks out there like CBEN and others that I think represent hundreds of institutions who are doing this or are interested in doing more with it. And so I don't know off the top of my head what the count is of the number of institutions that have a competency-based degree program, let's say. It's in the hundreds, if not the, the thousands. It seems like this is, has to be the direction of travel that we're going if we're going to be more career skills-based oriented. Because to get through a program and not have mastery of the content or the course, uh, I think it signals something wrong there, right? For the <laughs> for the employer. So it'll be interesting because I don't even think a consumer knows the difference. Like you mentioned, capturing part of the market. I don't think they know the difference of going to WGU's CBE-based program or Arizona State Universities. These are two large online universities, non-CBE-based program. There's probably a blending between the two. I'm sure there's a CBE element to what ASU does, but since they probably time box a course, right? This is an eight-week course. This is a 12-week course. You get through it and you go on to the next step. So this is a trend that I just, I'm, I'm following very closely. WG is this unicorn that does companies-based programs, which to me and you, we actually understand what that means. The consumer, I don't think they're saying, ooh, I want to go to a CBE program versus a time-based program, which I don't even think our audience, half, if we quiz them, they wouldn't even know what that means. But the point is you're mastering a concept, right? That's the way I, I understand it. And you can, if you can master it in four weeks, you go on to the next hurdle, right? It's like getting a black belt, you know, in karate. You know, you don't just get it in a year or four years or 10 years. You have to kind of get through a system that somebody is entrusted in getting you through the different gates. And it seems like a lot of our society is built on a competency-based model, whereas higher education is built on this time-based model. But that's being broken today by both alternative credentials, which are very competency-based oriented, and some innovators like WTU. So I was just, those are, I'm just trying, wrapping my head around where we're going in the future with this. What you said reminded me of the fact that at the end of a WGU experience or the Arizona State experience or any other one that you reference, often the end product is a degree. And it doesn't have any special label that says, well, this is a competency-based degree, or this is a an X degree, or just make up a term. It is a university degree from an accredited institution, and that there are already many different ways that you can get to that degree endpoint. If you do a degree experientially, or if you stack together a bunch of micro-credentials, yes, there might have been very different parts and, and experiences in that, and it might have been very non-traditional and very innovative but the end product uh, that the person has as part of their identity or that the employer might look at and so on 
typically is, hey, you have a bachelor's now, regardless of the mode through which it was earned. In the same way that we're finally in a place where earning degrees online, I've been tracking that for 20 years. When online degrees started out uh, and where the domain largely of of for-profit universities and many traditional schools weren't doing it, it was only 20 or 30% of hiring managers and HR leaders said that they would view an online degree as on par with a traditional degree. And then that went up into the 40, 50, 60% range is at 63% acceptance prior to the pandemic. And we have a survey we're about to release this week that shows that uh, it accelerated further due to the pandemic specifically, and it's at 71%. So a majority of corporate leaders are now accepting of degrees earned online, largely because they've sent employees into those programs. They've hired people from those programs. Many of them have gotten a degree online themselves. We see that in the open-ended responses. And it's now something that is mainstream, but that took 25 years, but it's all a degree versus having to dig into what was the the form that it was in. The other thing about a competency-based institution or program and it reminded me of an experiential learning program like at Northeastern or an institution that has that as its model. University of Waterloo in Canada is another one, for example, is often the institution's culture and all of their systems and their rhythm and their calendar and the faculty that they hire need to be oriented around that innovative and different model. And so that's part of what makes it hard for other institutions to just start doing some of these things that are really quite different is it becomes hard to put into place all the right processes and people and have the culture and the ethos of students who are rotating in and out of the world of work. At Northeastern, for example, I believe there's there's well over 100, perhaps 150 people who are supporting the employer relations and uh, counseling the students on job placement and resume preparation and reflection and all of that. And that's what it takes to do experiential learning at scale in the case of one institution. So maybe you could do that at another university on a program-by-program basis, or in the case where you start an institution from scratch uh, with a new model, like a Minerva, let's say. But otherwise, it can be hard to get an institution as a whole to operate in some of these new models. So what other innovations in higher ed are you seeing that have your attention today? That's a great question. Unfortunately, the last two years with the pandemic, it seems there's been this appropriate focus on just what's happening in the present and getting some of our existing models uh, to work and keep colleges open. So it feels like some of the innovation and excitement has slowed down a bit because there's uh, other things that needed to be attended to. But as we discussed, the general shift toward online models and digital learning, I think, is very, very significant. And the real opportunity, and there's some research literature uh, that suggests this can be really the ideal model, is blending and hybrid learning done in a well-designed, intentional way where, okay, and we're seeing it, I think, even at institutions who have institutions and bases of students who have no desire to go back to remote learning, but they are interested now in maybe flipping the classroom and focusing more on discussion and the convenience of having a lecture streamed to them online from their dorm room and everything in between. So I think over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see this development of a much more blended and hybrid learning. I I wrote about an article a few years back, and I see others are are talking in these terms now too, as omni-channel learning. So if I order something from Target, I can pick it up at the store, I can go, I can have that experience, but I can also do it online. And that's also, of course, true of all kinds of services that we access as consumers in certain ways. And I know some of them, it's hard to compare to the educational process, but we're living in a more omni-channel world and our universities are going to be much more online. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be online and that we're not going to have in person, but there will be a very significant blending. There's just much more work to do to be able to do that right, to be able to train faculty, to be able to, even how we frame these things and having students prospective students, current students, parents, policymakers, everyone who's not an educational expert understand what is it that we mean by this model and what are the benefits of it or when is it not the right fit for you because it's something new versus the idea that, okay, education is we go off into a classroom and we do some paperwork and then we graduate and we hang a piece of paper on the wall 
all of those pieces are now much more digitally infused. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody can hide behind this just can't be done online and leave it at that, given what has happened the last two years where pretty much everything went online. Plus, there's new technology emerging every day. I just interviewed the head of the Realm 4, they call it, at Arizona State, where they're bringing virtual reality into the classroom, which is really exciting uh, around some of the lab work and their biology class. So I'm looking forward to seeing that play out. So let's look ahead five years. Obviously, we're still getting through this pandemic. What do you think is going to change during this time period? If you, if you had a crystal ball, what are some predictions that you might have? It's a tough question. I think, well, it's almost impossible to predict. We are at an interesting place with policy and pushback and just consumer and political perception of higher education and its costs and its benefits and its value. Is it a public good? Is it a private good? Should people take out loans and use education to get jobs? Should we forgive the loans? Should we not have debt? I mean, all these complicated issues. But if you just look at how things have progressed over over decades, this difficult moment in, in the American system, I think. There's really an open market where there's a lot of competition, but it is also just a very, very highly regulated industry, whether that relates to the financing of education or what happens at the state level or at the federal level. As we saw in the last couple of years, the discussion and debate about community college and free college, free community college, student loan forgiveness, online learning, apprenticeships. Does money get redirected to fund apprenticeships rather than traditional colleges and universities? It's unfortunately hard for me to say exactly how it'll play out, but I think we're at a very interesting sort of tipping point compared to where we might have been in a much more steady state for like 30, 40, 50 years in some ways. Post-World War II, Vietnam War, you just had this growing higher education market. Sure, there's some demographic shifts here and there, more and more borrowing, more and more federal funding. And right now, given all the changes that have happened in our world and, and some of the issues in society and economically and otherwise, it's an interesting time for higher education and it makes it exciting to be someone who works in it and studies it. If you think the employer is going to increasingly be have a role, as they've always had a bigger role in the process, which we've talked a little bit about today, and are going to bring content to bear training, new training methods to bear, and a new way of hiring to bear, is it possible they might kink the cost curve a little bit? I mean, this runaway debt, you know, we're going to be $3 trillion in debt, <laughs> assuming it's not forgiven, which I don't even know what that means from a debt counter, student debt counter perspective, if, if some of it's forgiven. But any thoughts around the cost end of things? Yeah, well, I was going to pick up on when you said employers. One thing I don't see in any of our national interview discussions and large-scale surveys and roundtables with employers is necessarily a giant employer pushback where they say, you know what, we do not like the products of colleges and universities. Uh, the degrees aren't relevant. The experiences aren't relevant. We don't like the graduates that we're hiring. You sometimes see that in the, in the media, and certainly there's plenty of things that are wrong with higher ed in some respects and uh, things that could be done better. But I would want to get across that generally, I think employers are somewhat happy with the talent that they get out of colleges and universities and of the value of degrees. But that's also part of why employers are very interested in micro-credentials is that these things are potentially high impact and more affordable and quicker rather than just this presumption that the degree, the big expensive product, is the solution for what someone has to have when they hire them or what they need to do to upskill their employee, where, by the way, degrees have never really been the focus outside of maybe some executive MBA programs. Most on the job learning is, is very informal. Sometimes it might relate in a credential. I also think we'll see this trend of employers as educators themselves continue to percolate and continue to see more of that. Circling back around to the question about the cost, maybe employers can play a role in that. There's been a lot of attention and energy about employer financing of employee learning. And that's something that our recent research has shown seems to be increasing. The multi-decade trend prior to the pandemic was less investment on the part of employers, but they realized that this can be a, a key retention tool that the need for people to upgrade their skills is accelerating and so that they have to do something and that also they can't always wait for the college and university system. 
that's where it gets really interesting is when you think about, for example, the shift to electric vehicles or different types of components in manufacturing microchips or new approaches to composite manufacturing for the next generation of airplanes and spaceflight, those major, major Fortune 100 companies, let's say, that are driving those industries, they need to think and plan on 10 and 20-year cycles, or at least 5, 10, 15-year cycles when they think about their pipeline and their supply chain and their R&D. And so they can't just hire a graduate that has what they need today. So they need to kind of go backward into middle schools and high schools and partner with community colleges and maybe make some of their own investments when we see some of these creative partnerships or get government at the table to make some of the right investments so that there is the talent pipeline that they need to grow these new industries. Climate change, I mean, pick sort of an issue of the future. It's going to require education and a well-educated society. And so there's going to be all kinds of options in terms of how we approach that. Well, it's a good way to end it, Sean. So my last question that I ask of all my guests, part of what we love about education is that we all have learning champions. Who has been a learning champion for you and how has that person helped you in your life? This is probably a common answer, but I'd, I'd say my parents. My mom's a nurse and my dad's a dentist. And so they had to do continuous, continuing ed where growing up, and I know this was a privileged situation to be in with, with my parents in those professions, but growing up, they were constantly going to conferences, listening to books on tape in the car as we drove around, earning different certifications. And so I just thought that's something that everybody does. And I guess that's it's part of what inspired me to go through different levels of education to get to a place where I'm at a higher ed institution as my profession. But having the benefit of that experience of, of people in my life who were engaged in learning themselves throughout their lifetime and, and encouraged and supported that was really crucial. And that's what I'd say. Sean, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. I learned so much from the call. And so until next time, this has been An Educated Guest. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to An Educated Guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley University Services, please visit universityservices.wiley.com.